Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hello, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series. I am Professor Derek A. Cohen. I'm an associate professor here at the Kennedy School. And I have the pleasure today of hosting the WAP seminar in place of my colleague, Hannah Riley Bowles. Uh, as many in our audience today know, WAP closes gender gaps in areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Uh, today, we have the honor of hosting Sabrina Karim, who will be presenting her book, which is co-authored work with Professor Kyle Beardsley. Uh, the book is titled Equal Opportunity Peacekeeping, Women, Peace, and Security in Post-Conflict States. Uh, the book received the prestigious 2017 Best Book Prize from the Conflict Research Society. Uh, professor Kareem is an assistant professor and the Kaplan Faculty Fellow in the Government Department at Cornell University. Um, a couple more notes. In addition to those of us in the room today, I also welcome WAP's podcast community, which has downloaded our seminars over 28,000 times. Um, we are so pleased also to have a rippling impact beyond the walls of this room. And with our podcast listeners in mind, we ask that everyone please turn off their cell phones and also that any of our audience's questions today be on topic, uh, should be posed in the form of a question, and should be directly related to our presenter's research for today. Uh, thank you all so much for attending, and please join me in welcoming Sabrina Kareem. Uh, I just want to start off by thanking uh, the center here, as well as, um, in particular, I, I do want to just say something about Dara. Um, so since it is International Women's Day and it's when we were encouraged this morning to kind of really think about the people that have made a difference in our lives, especially women. Um, and this is a particular note uh, for Dara, who I met as a first year graduate student um, way back in 2012. Um, we had a breakfast meeting um, in Stockholm, Sweden. And Really, um, it was really inspiring to meet somebody like Dara, and I look up to her so much. And so it's re really actually an honor for me to be here um, and be presented. You know, that she was actually presenting me <laughs> to give this uh, give, to give this talk. So um, I, I just wanted to appreciate our six years of friendship and mentorship, uh, which has meant a lot to me. Um, but thank you very much, and it's in, in, in an incredible honor to be here on International Women's Day in general. Um, just because there, you know, it's such an it's a, it's such an important day that is actually, I think, celebrated quite a bit in lots of parts of the world, right? So I, I got some text messages this morning from friends from around the world wishing me Happy International Women's Day. But it, for whatever reason, it's interesting that we don't really celebrate it too much here in the U.S. And so this breakfast this morning was so inspiring, and to see the the work that. Um, the Institute is doing on this day to, to recognize it is, is also wonderful. So it's an honor to be here. Um, so I'm presenting this book, Equal Opportunity Peacekeeping, which came out last year. And it's a take on looking at peacekeeping missions through a gendered lens and trying to understand the role that women play in peacekeeping missions and the legacies that peacekeeping missions leave with respect to gender equality when they go into post-conflict countries. Um, and you know, help keep the peace and also participate in state building. Um, but I'm going to start off by providing some context for the book. And 
if we can all remember before 2016, um, the U.S. foreign policy looked a little bit different than it does today. Um, and that was largely due to uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, which, who moved American foreign policy in this direction of valuing women's rights and gender equality. Starting with her um, tenure as Secretary of State, the U.S. kind of shifted towards adopting a not quite a feminist foreign policy. We didn't quite say that. But she did a number of things to really put gender equality and, human, and women's rights at the forefront of foreign policy, not as a development issue, but as a security and conflict, peace and security issue. And this stems back from her time um, you know, as uh, not Secretary of State, but uh, when she attended in 1995 um, as First Lady, the Beijing Conference. And so some of you might know what the Beijing Conference in 1995 was about, but it was really the first time that women's rights had been put on this international um, stage as a you know, as, a, as, a, as an important foreign policy, not just foreign policy, but as an international norm, really. And at this 1995 Beijing uh, conference, she made this remark, women's rights are human's rights, and human rights are women's rights once and for all. And she took this statement and really had, had incorporated it as Secretary of State when she was in the State Department into something called the Hillary Doctrine. Right, which is basically this statement right here, that the subjugation of women is a direct threat to the security of the United States, um, and made it into a security issue. Right? So she did things like have the highest number of female ambassadors ever. Uh, she created a global office for women's issues that was directly placed in the White House. Uh, and so there was you know, direct correspondence between the first ambassador, Milan Gravier, and President Obama at the time which indicated right, that this was a priority issue. Um, and every time she went to the many, many countries, that she's the Secretary of State that has visited the most amount of countries, she always spoke to women on the ground and made it a point to demonstrate this point, right, that the subjugation of women is a direct security concern for everybody. The US was not the only country that has started to adopt this kind of foreign policy. And so in 2014, we saw Sweden also adopt an actual feminist foreign policy. They would come out and, 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 and stated that that's the name of it. Um, and what, they kind of operationalized this through uh, focusing on sexual, exploit, sexual exploitation and abuse within peacekeeping missions, but sexual violence, wartime sexual violence, they have a lot of policy and uh, focus on that. Uh, girls' education, so they've, they've operationalized it in a lot of different ways. But again, the focus is really on gender equality and women's rights being at the forefront of foreign policy. That is what a feminist foreign policy is about. They're not the only country. So the US, Sweden, we also have seen moves by Canada and the UK to also incorporate women's rights and gender equality into their own foreign policy. So when I say this again, it's referring to foreign, um, women's issues through a security framework. Right? That's the difference. We've kind of moved from thinking of it as a development issue now to one that should be incorporated into peace and security in conflict. But at the country level, right, we've seen this shift. But before all of that, it was actually the United Nations that institutionalized this idea in 2000 through UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And what this resolution did, it was pioneering in the sense that it was the very first time that the UN Security Council ever had a resolution that dealt with women. Right. Anything related to gender equality, anything related to women's rights. 
And, and to tell you a little bit about the United Nations, you really need, you know, the resolutions are the, are the key pillars of what the UN does, right? They pass resolutions um, as kind of like legislation. It's, it's not quite the same thing, but that's what mandates the work that they do. And so the fact that this was passed in 2000 really made this women, peace, and security agenda um, something that was institutionalized within the UN. And one of the ways that they've done that is to advocate for women, peace, and security through peacekeeping. In fact, in the all, all areas that, of what the UN does, there's kind of two areas where they really focused on this issue. One is peacekeeping, and the other is through mediation. I'd say that there's a little bit more done on this issue uh, of this resolution being operationalized through peacekeeping though, than mediation. And so what we wanted to do then is to look at this 18 years in which uh, this resolution has been passed and to try to understand uh, to what extent have peacekeeping missions achieved gender equality in operations and been vehicles for promoting gender equality in post-conflict countries. So this is the guiding question for questions, I guess, for the book. Um, but before I get into how we do this, I do want to give you a little bit of a primer of what peacekeeping missions are, because we may not all know what they are and what they do. Um, and what this is, is this, this is a map of um, the, this is actually still new, this is from 2017, January 2017, a year ago, a little bit over a year ago. But these are the missions across the world that exist right now. Right? But what is a mission? A mission is a, again, passing of a resolution that when there's a, a civil war and armed conflict and there's a negotiated settlement, a peace agreement of some sort, right? there can be the petition for a peacekeeping mission to come in and enforce that negotiated settlement, right? to observe and make sure that the provisions of that negotiated settlement are being carried out. Right? So you have a third party come in and monitor this negotiated settlement. And that's really what a peacekeeping mission does um, more general. There's different types of peacekeeping missions, but that's, that's the, the general idea. They are composed of civilians, soldiers, and police officers. Now, as you know, they don't have, the UN does not have a standing army or a standing police force. So what do they do? How do they get these soldiers? How do they get police officers? Well, after there's a resolution that's passed, and you have to pass a resolution every year to renew these missions as well. So there might be a new mission, or there might be the continuation of prior missions, there's a call every year to all member states, so all countries in the world, for contributions by soldiers and police officers, and to some extent civilians as well. So it's other countries, militaries, and police officers that are basically seconded to the UN to carry out peacekeeping missions. And this becomes important because we want to look at the types of countries that are actually uh, contributing to peacekeeping missions. So here is uh, from the most recent uh, reports that came out December of last year, the top contributing countries in the world. They have Ethiopia, Bangladesh, India, Rwanda, Pakistan, Nepal, Egypt, Senegal, Indonesia, Ghana. And if you can read the fine print, the list is longer here, over here. Is there anything that you notice about this list that strikes you? That's right, they're all developing countries. Anything else? I mean, that's kind of the main observation, but anything else? There's a reason for that, right? The reason is that poorer countries actually profit from sending soldiers 
and police officers into peacekeeping missions because the UN pays countries per head. And oftentimes, the poorer countries pay their soldiers and their police officers at a lower rate than what they're getting from the UN. So they stand to actually profit from participating in peacekeeping operations. And there's also some uh, work that shows that it's also highly populated countries, or countries with a lot of people in militaries and police forces as well. Um, and so those two things combine high population density and then develop, developing countries that can stand to benefit and profit from peacekeeping missions. Um, okay, so in thinking about peacekeeping, so that, that's kind of like peacekeeping 101. I don't know if there are any other questions about how they work. A few things, actually, a few other things to note. Um, there's two different types, if you will, of, of con contributions. So you can either have <coughs> contingents, which are battalions, essentially, of soldiers, so about 150 soldiers that work in battalions. On the police side, the equivalent of that is a formed police unit. So you have battalions of police officers as well. Right? So you can have at, at the battalion level. You can also send peacekeepers <coughs> at the individual level. And those are civilians, and those are actually police officers and military observers. So countries can send individual <coughs> officers, or they can send battalions. This becomes important later on in the talk as well. OK, but getting back to 1325, um, we wanted to take a look at how 1325 might have affected, UN Security Council 1325, right? how it might have affected peacekeeping missions. And we do this by looking first at how women's participation in peacekeeping missions might have improved over time, how there might be better protection against wartime sexual violence as a result of peacekeeping missions, um, and then also looking at this problem of sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers. And so at the beginning of the book, we, we set out to kind of look at the optimistic um, we're a little bit more optimis optimistic and try to look at the successes of 1325, right? And then we're going to go into some of the, the broader issues. Okay, so let's just take a look at participation. This is a little outdated because uh, the data, you know, when we were working on the book, it was 2013, 2014, so. <laughs> but the trends have not changed. So this is, this gray line right here is the trend for the proportion of women in the military, right, troop contributing countries. And then up here is for police contributions. One important thing to note is that, so this ends at around 2014. The former Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, had stated that the UN should have a goal of reaching 10% military, right? 10% of women in the military, and 20% for police. And so by 2014, we're clearly not there. Um, and we can take a closer look and over time a little bit more, this is the military. We kind of are hovering at around three to four percent, um, and this is, this is still the same right now. Um, for police contributions, we're still hovering at around 10 to 15 percent. In fact, there's been a little bit of a decline over the last couple of years um, because, as I'll, as, you'll, as I'll talk about a little bit later, um, the all-female units uh, are gone. So we don't have any more all-female units in the world, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so we haven't met the goal, but there's an increasing trend which is maybe perhaps somewhat optimistic, right? This breaks down by mission, the proportion of women in um, missions. So the mission in Nepal, the mission in Cyprus, were the top, the, had the highest number or highest proportion of women. But again, you know, we're not even at 7% or 8% yet. Um, 
then some missions had, you know, not even 1%. So there's still there's quite a bit of variation. Could you say a little bit about the importance of having women? I'll get there. Because yes. I don't understand, it's not necessary all the time to try to get women in the I just want to understand yep. how big and at what level does it matter. Yes, we will get, I will get there. Um, this is, but we just want to look at the successes first and actually this question that you raise about the justification of having women in peacekeeping missions is important. So we're going to talk about that um, actually right now. <laughs> but I want to show you though first is that there have been some improvements in women's participation in peacekeeping missions. Okay, so, you know, 7% may not seem like a lot, but it is when we compare it to 1957 through 1989. This is a poster by the UN, piece of propaganda, if you will, that they, that they, they have a lot of posters like these um, to incentivize women's participation, et cetera. And there's a few points here that I want to talk about. The first is actually this, this point of success, right? So from 1957 to 1989, in this 32-year time period, there were only 20 uniformed women serving in all <coughs> missions, right? Only 20 total in this 32 time period, 32 year time period. That's, you know, that's not very many. And so we have moved forward in thinking about women's participation. So this is, this is at least some improvement. The other thing, one other point is this little graph over here on all female U UN police units deployed around the world. So one of the innovations <coughs> that UN peacekeeping <coughs> missions had in 2007 was that, in, actually by India and later Bangladesh, they deployed a battalion of all women police officers to Liberia in 2007. And this was heralded as a huge innovation, as a huge success for women's participation in, in armed conflict. Um, it hit all the headlines. It was in the New York Times, it was in the Washington Post, it was everywhere. Um, and then in, in uh, a few years later, Bangladesh also followed suit and also sent um, all female units into Haiti and into um, the DRC. Um, but this was, this was a big success, right? This is, so this is an innovation, and we're gonna talk about this innovation a little bit later, um, but it increased women's participation. And the reason, like I said, that we see a little bit of a dip right now is because we don't have any more of these all female units anywhere in the world. Okay, now this point about justification. So the other thing that I wanna point to is this little figure here. And if you can't read it, what it says is the presence of female peacekeepers, one, helps reduce conflict and confrontation. Two, provides a greater sense of security to women and children. Three, improves access and support for local women. And four, makes our peacekeepers more approachable to women. There's seems to be right an added justification that's necessary for women's inclusion in peacekeeping missions. Right? The UN has stated, not just here, but uh, on their website and in other um, glossy brochures and reports, that we need female peacekeepers because they add something to the mission. Right? They add, whether it's adding that they can they have more access to local women, they might add um, by making the, the peacekeeping mission more approachable or you know, uh, more trustworthy to locals, et cetera, there's a reason why we need women. There's a justification. The interesting thing is, right, there's no justification for why you need men in peacekeeping missions. So this is gonna come back, we're gonna come back to this point a little bit later. But to answer your question, right, 
these are the reasons why uh, the UN says that we need a greater number of women in peacekeeping missions. So how do the numbers break down if we look at each of the contributing countries? And so I've taken the top 10 contributing countries and looked at the number of women in December of 2017. Um, and to put it in order here, Ghana comes out on top with 11.5%. So they're actually meeting this 10%, which is great. Then we have Ethiopia, Rwanda, Nepal, Senegal. You know, there's kind of a big jump between Ethiopia and Rwanda and then you know, we go down the list and see that these other top contributing countries aren't necessarily performing that well when it comes to women's inclusion. Um, okay, okay, but the big takeaway from this part, right, is that in general, women's participation has, in peacekeeping missions, has improved since the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. It's definitely become a major part of something that the UN is trying to do, so there's more policies in trying to bring in women peacekeepers. Um, but as we're going to see, there's still room for improvement. Okay, the second area of potential success is thinking about what peacekeeping missions have done for wartime sexual violence, with the idea being that somehow peacekeeping missions and peacekeepers might be able to help with the situation or at least prevent wartime sexual violence from happening in the future. But in order for that to happen, we need to make sure that peacekeeping missions actually deploy to the countries where there are high levels of wartime sexual violence happening. Right, so that's what we looked at. We looked at <coughs> looking at actually Dara's, using DARA's data, um, whether or not peacekeeping missions are de deployed to the countries with higher levels of wartime sexual violence. And the good news is that they are. So if we look at where there's reports of massive or and several many um, incidents of sexual violence, uh, there's higher numbers of years of deployment, and we test this a number of different ways, and it's, it's very consistent. So the good news is that peacekeeping missions are deploying to um, places where they're needed with respect to sexual violence. The reason that I have this this picture of Angelina Jolie and uh, William Hague, the former foreign minister of the UK, is because while this is this is good news, showing you statistically that this is good news, but there's also uh, at the policy level, innovations that show that there's this is you know there's a trend towards um, helping with wartime sexual violence. So in 2013, there was this big, massive 2013, 20, I think it was 2013, big, massive global summit on wartime sexual violence led by Angelina Jolie and William Hague, and I think this kind of epitomizes the trend in the women, peace, and security agenda that we've seen since 2000. Since 2000, there have been about eight other resolutions, UN resolutions, on women, peace, and security. And the majority of them have dealt with wartime sexual violence. So the evolving, not necessarily legal jurisprudence, but the evolving policies respect, with respect to women, peace, and security has been heavily biased and towards focusing on wartime sexual violence. Right. And I think really this kind of this summit um, kind of epitomizes that idea. Right. So at the policy level making again, and then at the implementation level, we do see that there's some good news in terms of focusing on wartime sexual violence. Okay. So the last point of potential success is on sexual exploitation and abuse. Unfortunately, as we've seen in the recent recently in the news, right, peacekeepers are not the only international actors. Mm -hmm that uh, engage in sexually and sexually exploiting and abusing local populations. We had that Oxfam report that came out recently. Uh, nevertheless, this is 
something that the, the UN is definitely not immune to. The interesting fact, though, is that there was no policy on this until 2006. So if you recall in the 1990s, and this very famous movie called, um, of course I'm blanking on the name right now, <laughs> um, the, the, um, the whistleblower, yes, thank you. The whistleblower in the 1990s, the UN was actually implicated in the trafficking ring in the 1990s. They were involved in trafficking <coughs> young girls in Bosnia. Um, and this, you know, this movie is about it, there's a book about it. Um, but they didn't do anything until 2006, and, that's be and they actually started doing something about it because there were more reports that started surfacing in 2004, 2005, 2006 of rape allegations um, by peacekeepers in the DRC and other places. And so in 2007, 2006, but really 2007, we finally get a conduct and discipline unit within the United Nations that didn't exist before that. And we get a zero tolerance policy, which is mandated now in every single peacekeeping mission. And we finally start keeping track of data. So they didn't keep track of reports or allegations of UN peacekeeping violations until that date, which is, I mean, it's very unfortunate. But now there's an institution, right, at least that is helping with this. Okay, so some progress overall in time. That doesn't mean that there are not problems that we still face. And the, the reason to, f to really think about these problems is twofold. So one actually ties very much into the talk this morning on implicit bias, bias because it's very possible that maybe we're thinking about this problem in the wrong way. So maybe we're thinking about it in a participation lens or a protection lens, um, but we need to be thinking about it from a cultural organization perspective, which is actually what this book does. But also important because if you don't address these problems of gender equality within an organization that makes, it makes that organization inefficient and even ineffective in what it's trying to do. Right? And, and I'll show you exactly how that, how that is. Okay, so there's three problems that I'm gonna focus on. Discrimination, a gendered protection norm, and then continued sexual exploitation and abuse. We add harassment and violence, because interestingly, whenever a peacekeeper rapes a adolescent girl, it's not called rape, it's called sexual exploitation or sexual abuse in the media or wherever. Okay. So we think it's important to actually state what's going on. I have a nice parallel picture of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf here with these two. So we come back to this all-female unit uh, from India, and they were deployed in Liberia. And I'm not going to talk about kind of the traditional ways we think of discrimination, because all of that exists in peacekeeping missions. Whether it's wage gaps, whether it's you know preferences for men, all of that exists. So in the book we talk about that. But I want to talk about a particular kind of discrimination, which is related to how people talked about this all-female unit in the media, in the UN, and in reports. Now, the job of this all-female, well, not all-female, but the foreign police units, is security. A group of police officers that are deployed, their job is to, one, protect Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. They're kind of, they kind of serve as her bodyguards in country. Their job is to protect key installations in the country. And their job is to provide backup if there's a riot situation or some other uh, big event that happens. Um, but when this group of women were, were evaluated for whether or not they were successful or not, let's look at the language that's used in the media. Right? 
So this, there's so many of these kinds of news articles, um, but I'm just gonna, I just point out two. So here I'm gonna read you, this is an article that came out in 2010 about the women. According to Jixon Sargor, the principal of Victory Chapel School, the Indian peacekeeping contingent provides the children with medication, lessons on using computers, and Indian dance and self-defense. In addition, the principal believes that Indian women have brought much, a much more important message to the children. There's nothing that in this about the security role that the women are playing, right? And it's true. All formed police units engage in community activities. In fact, it's not just this all-female unit that engages in community activities, right? Everybody wants to help the community that they're working in. It's not a formal part of their job, but it's something in addition that they do. But the all-female units are recognized for this wonderful community work that they're doing, not the security that they're providing. Right? So by focusing on the gender roles, the kind of implicit idea, or the implicit biases of the gender roles that women in security would have, it automatically gravitates to these gendered ideas of what women should be doing, which is related to children, which is related to teaching, which is related to dancing, as opposed to the security that they're actually very successfully engaging in. Providing. Here's another example. Uh, so this is not about the all-female units necessarily, but just about female peacekeepers in general. This New York Times article states the softer, the softer approach, referring to the inclusion of women, is critical in Liberia. In 2004, a UN report criticized peacekeepers in Liberia, the DRC, and Haiti for sexual abuse of young women by trading food and money for sex. In 2005, 47 peacekeepers were accused of sexual abuse in Liberia, compared with 18 who were accused last year, according to the UN mission. The important part. Top UN officials credit the arrival of women for helping improve behavior. So what is this saying? It's saying that for some reason, it is the job of the female peacekeepers to police the behavior of their male counterparts, instead of placing responsibility on the male peacekeepers who are engaging in this behavior. And there are numerous reasons why women would not do that or cannot, right? One, it might jeopardize their career if they are calling out their, their colleagues, right? It, they, they, they'll, they'll be whistleblowers, they might be punished. Um, there's no, they don't necessarily want to, you know, tattle or rat out on their male counterparts who are their friends, who, you know, um, are part of their social networks, et cetera. But more importantly, it's, it's an unfair burden to place on women which sets them up for failure. Right? So if we're evaluating women by these justifications, right? these justifications of the expectation that they should be able to reduce sexual exploitation and abuse, they are going to fail. And so what does that do? That gives people a legitimate claim that there should not be women in peacekeeping missions because they're not living up to the expectations that are placed on them. Right? So. This is a form of discrimination that, again, I think very well ties into what we talked about this morning about the implicit biases that uh, go into how we talk about things and how we think about things. Okay, the second problem that I want to talk about is something called a gendered protection norm. And it's the idea that even though women are in security roles, there's a assumption that they still need to be protected. Um, and so what we did is that we thought that it's not just important to think about women's participation in peacekeeping missions, but it's also important to know where they're deployed. Where are female, actually, female peacekeepers actually being deployed? And we looked at risk factors. And across the board, using different indicators, found that women tend to be deployed 
to the safest types of missions. So we looked at where there were peacekeeping deaths, we looked at where there were higher levels of wartime sexual violence, we looked at GDP, and found that there's this bias in terms of where women get sent. And they get sent to the safest places, not the riskiest places. Not to places where there are higher levels of wartime sexual violence. So no, right, peacekeeping missions go to places where there are higher levels of wartime sexual violence, but female peacekeepers do not. And again, coming back to the justification, if women are somehow supposed to help out with wartime sexual violence, they're not even going to those places. So how are we, how, do, how are they expected to, to do anything about it? Um, and so here, I want to show you this picture that I showed earlier. So Nepal and Cyprus have the highest number of female peacekeepers. People go on vacation to Cyprus and Nepal. Like these aren't necessarily, when you think of conflicts, they aren't the places that you think of necessarily. And in fact, Cyprus had a, um, the very first time that there was a female force commander who's the leader of all of the military contingents, the very first time that there was a female, she was sent to Cyprus, right? not, a, not, a, not, a, not another mission. Um, so there's, at the macro level, we're definitely seeing this trend right, of this protection norm. We see it at the country level as well, the contributing country level. So I got to do a lot of interviews, um, both in uh, Bangladesh, where the, which is one of the highest contributing countries, and then also, I'll show you in a second, um, I did about 100 interviews with female and male peacekeepers in Liberia as well. But this quote is from uh, a Bangladeshi uh, group captain in the Air Force who was actually responsible for a lot of decision making in peacekeeping missions. And he says, right, although officially risk factors are not taken into consideration while selecting female officers in mission areas, still today female officers are deployed with contingents only where other officers and soldiers <coughs> reside in a secured camp area. They remain as a team. Female officers have not yet been deployed as the military observers where they are generally unarmed and remain alone in a remote area just to observe and report the hostilities. Definitely, safety, security, and cultural factors are taken into consideration while selecting female officers for missions. I've seen two mission areas, the East Timor and DRC, that also take into consideration risk factors. So you're thinking about the safety of the situation um, in terms of when they're thinking about deployment. The saddest part, though, I think, is when I did these interviews with uh, women, female peacekeepers and male peacekeepers on the ground. Because across the board, it didn't matter actually what country they came for, from or if they were in the police or military, and I did, there was no prompting of any sort. I just would ask them this kind of a general question, what are the biggest problems um, in peacekeeping mission? Across the board, they said it's the, 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 they're restricted in their mobility, so they can't leave campsite, restricted in their ability to meet other female peacekeepers, restricted in their ability to interact with community members and the community. Um, whereas when you ask men that same question, this didn't really come up at all. Um, their, their, their problems are quite different. But this restriction is then embodied in some of the, 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 quote, the quotes. Um, so, someone from the Jordanian contingent said, the biggest problem is the restriction on women. We don't see anything here because we cannot leave the base. We want just an exchange in culture and thought. We came here to know people from other countries, not just about us. And more sadly, I think somebody from, the, from a Nigerian contingent said, we want to go home now. We have no freedom. We're in a cage. We don't make friends. It's, it's a, it was really kind of sad to hear um, that women were really excited at getting this opportunity, but a lot of that is deflated once they get on the ground and they have these restrictions imposed on them. 
which again, not don't make them able to go out into the community and, and do the projects that they really want to do. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the uh, one of the solutions, and this is going to come up um, a few times. We look at the solution of, of promoting gender equality culturally at the cross-national level, but really the argument is at the organizational level. So what we did was we looked at the level of gender equality in the contributing countries, um, and it serves as a proxy for improvements that we see. So contributing countries at higher level had, had higher levels of gender equality were more likely to send female peacekeepers um, more equally across the board. I'm gonna come back to this point at the very end. Now I want to just touch on the third problem on sexual exploitation and abuse um, and, and harassment and violence. So here, as I said, the UN started keeping track of data over time, starting in 2007. I want to highlight that this is a massive undercount of what is actually going on on the ground. Right? And that is because it is extremely difficult for somebody who has been assaulted by a peacekeeper to come forward and make a claim. Unfortunately, when I was there, I was in Liberia um, last year, and this is the first time as I actually met somebody that was sexually assaulted by a peacekeeper. And so with her, I went through the entire process of what it is actually like to report. And I'm happy in the Q&A to, to talk about the, the steps, but it is nearly impossible for anybody to make a claim and, a re and re make a report. So the fact that we even get 112 reports in 2009 is a big deal. It's massively undercounted, for sure. Yes? Hmm. Um, we definitely did hear of harassment claims. Nobody came out and said, accused anybody of rape. Um, but this is the culture that you're in, and it's not just peacekeepers, actually. I think anybody that's in the humanitarian world, and anybody who's, who's experienced that in this room, might know that there, it's just a different world. right? And there's a lots of um, there's a gray line between what is sexual assault and harassment, and you know, casual sex, like there's, it's just, there's a, the lines are not defined, and, and that's a problem. It's a big problem, actually, because what if you are sexually assaulted? It's very easy to say that you weren't, you know, to make claims that you weren't. Um, okay. Uh, this is just to show you the sexual exploitation part of the sexual abuse and exploitation. So we did a representative survey in Monrovia, Liberia in 2012 um, using some survey techniques to try to get at the actual numbers of women that uh, engaged in transactional sex with a peacekeeper. And the, no the numbers are actually pretty staggering. So about 50% of the women that we interviewed said that they had engaged in transactional sex, and 30% of those women that said that they had engaged in transactional sex had done so with a peacekeeper. Um, but what this graph shows is that the onset of a peacekeeping mission led to an increase in an adolescent girl's first time engagement in transactional sex. So peacekeeping missions start in 2013, and we see a spike um, in the, the numbers of um, 14 to 18-year-olds that engaged in their first transactional sex. And so the counterfactual here right, would be that this would look a little bit more straight had peacekeeping missions not, uh, not been in country. Okay, um, one other thing that we do is we disaggregate between the military and police, and we find that you know the military is uh, a little bit more culpable than the police. Interestingly, in 2015, there was a report on peacekeeping in general, um, and it found that actually civilians are the worst perpetrators. 
there's no data on civilians. So that's why they're not included in our book is because they don't keep track of incidents against civilians. It's really just the police and the soldiers from other countries because they don't necessarily want to, um, they don't want their UN staff that are actually part of the UN the civilians to be culpable or have to deal with that problem. So um, that's just something to note that civilians are actually the worst problem. In 2016, um, the UN finally started releasing the names of the countries from which these allegations were made. And so these are the, the in absolute terms, the countries with the highest number of allegations. Um, again, massive undercount and a lot of these allegations, you know, we don't, there's probably many countries that aren't represented because of allegations that are never made. Okay, so let me just talk about the solution here really quickly, which is something that we call equal opportunity peacekeeping. And it's this idea that, actually I do want to go back to this slide, that gender equality and the culture of gender equality actually matters for a lot of these issues. So one of the other cross-national studies we did is we looked at the gender level of gender equality in the contributing countries across the mission. So when a mission is composed of countries that perform better on gender equality, there's fewer allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, and we measure, when we look, when I say gender equality, we measure it a, a, using a, a number of indicators. I show you here the labor force participation, uh, but it's consistent across a lot of different measures. Um, okay, but what is equal opportunity peacekeeping? What is this thing that I'm talking about in terms of what is a gender equality culture or culture of gender equality? Um, in the conclusion of the book, we, there's several recommendations of things that can be done to try to create more of this culture. And everything that I say here applies to any organization, right? It's not just peacekeeping <laughs> missions, um, although I think that there's a particular uh, potent or important reason why we should think about peacekeeping missions. But let's just talk about mission leadership uh, first. In a hierarchical organization like police and military, leadership matters, maybe more so for, for those organizations than for civilians. And so if you can choose leaders that value gender equality, that value women's roles, that might have a trickle-down effect. And there's lots of ways that we can choose these kinds of leaders. So right now, there's, there's lots of qualifications for how a force commander who's the head of a military or a police commissioner that's head of the police are chosen. But one of those criteria is not their performance on gender equality. So what if we made that right, a requirement? And not just for leaders, right? This could become a standard for recruitment in general. So we could have people taking implicit bias, bias tests. We could have an evaluation of how well leaders have promoted women when they were heads of their organizations. There's all kinds of ways and standards that we could implement for recruitment for both personnel and also for leaders that would not only, I think, have an effect for um, bringing in better people, but also more women. So you have kind of this side effect of probably bringing in uh, more women anyway because the things that you are valuing right, is, is, is broader. So instead of just valuing how well somebody can shoot a gun or how well somebody can uh, drive a, a stick shift car, which are all requirements by the way, or use a computer, right, we're valuing maybe things like listening, we're valuing things like communication ability. And when you have a broader range of, of, of things that you value that are needed in an organization, you're going to bring in a, a, diver, a more diverse set of people. That's the idea. Um, promotion and demotion. This is something that is, is not necessarily unique to the UN, but there are all kinds of small things that can be done 
that peacekeepers value immensely within the mission. So they have medal parades, for example, when contingents leave, and they give awards to people. So what if, what if you use that as an incentive for, for good behavior um, in the mission? By good behavior, I mean things, again, that promote women or that focus on gender equality. What if you didn't give people their desired uh, job within the mission? What if you didn't renew their contracts? Like, these are all things that can be manipulated um, through a gendered lens. The importance of role models, networks, and mentors, um, I think that's, that's kind of self-explanatory, right? We have the old boys club everywhere in every institution. Um, but in, in particular, right, there's, since there's so few women, it's very important to have role models and networks who can promote um, you know, this kind of culture as well. Um, and then training and professionalism. So I'm gonna ask, you're not allowed to answer this question. <laughs> How many hours of training do you think peacekeepers get on everything that I've just talked about when they're in the mission? Any guesses for how many total hours? 40. 40 hours? Wow. Okay. No, it's lower than that. <laughs> 10. Lower. So it's like two to three hours that they get briefed on sexual exploitation and abuse, on gender training. Sometimes it's you know, mainstreamed into other things, but really it's a very short amount of time, and I don't think it's done the right way. So if you have somebody, you know, the official gender trainer in the mission who's talking to a bunch of soldiers and police officers, they're not gonna take her, usually, seriously, right? So you need to think about a better way to communicate with soldiers and police officers where it resonates better. Um, and I think that bring, means bringing in leadership um, because they value this hierarchical structure so much. Um, so these, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of suggestions in the book, and I'm happy to talk about it more in the Q&A as well. Um, but I want to just end with saying that the reason why I think it's so important to think about this issue in peacekeeping missions, I know it seems very niche, like why, why focus on a culture of gender equality in peacekeeping missions? It seems kind of strange. The reason is that, is that peacekeeping missions, as many of us may not know, are actually really important when it comes to state building. They play an enormous role in social engineering and social construction in post-conflict countries. In countries like Liberia, in countries like Haiti, in countries like the DRC. It is really these international actors that are shaping the institutions that are getting made. And that has major ramifications down the road. So what kind of legacy are peacekeeping missions leaving with respect to gender equality? They have an, an enormous opportunity to leave a good one, but if they don't address these issues, right, then the legacy might be bad. I hope it's the latter, um, but that's why I think it's really important um, to think about these issues within that context. Thank you. maybe there's not enough supply of women in militaries and police forces. And so we did actually code the proportion of women in uh, a lot of different contributing countries. And what we found was it definitely matters for the military. So when you have higher proportions of women in the military, that does lead to higher numbers of women going into peacekeeping missions. That does not hold for police organizations. Um, and actually, uh, just a personal anecdote, I think that there's a huge information problem when it comes to 
for, for bringing in more police officers that are women. The reason is I had the opportunity to, to give a similar talk at the International Association for Women's Policing, which is the annual convention on for female police officers um, in 2016. And we uh, I was working with the UN agency at the time, or I mean, in collaboration with, and we had a booth on UN policing. And we were doing, actually we were doing intakes to see uh, how many you know, people were interested and they were doing the surveys. And 50% of the people that were surveyed had never heard of the opportunity to actually um, participate in the peacekeeping mission. So there's a huge information gap um, about this opportunity, right? And I think it's because certain people, you know, it's, it's lucrative. You make a lot of money when you do this. So I think the channels of how that information gets passed in different police organizations aren't necessarily Equal. Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, um, the women uh, peacemaking in the United Nations are uh, established by men all the time ago before all this history. Mm -hmm. So, uh, do you think good men really were very concerned about human being, human rights? Another question is, uh, I think what you said is uh, we must try something, we started in some else, Sweden something, but I, I thought we must try starting in the United States, really. The United States, American women are the ones who are really the backbone of uh, materially, psychologically, and even intellectually behind all this thing. The, who did the right thing. So I just want yep. to really ask that question. Sure. So the first question about uh, the role of men. The nice thing about the argument that we make in the book is that it's 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 not necessarily an argument for women's participation. We think that's important, and we're trying to increase women's participation. But what we think is important is the values on gender norms that all people hold. Right. So in order to do things like increase participation, it's not about quotas. Rather, it's about changing culture so that both men and women are valued, but more importantly, that masculine traits and feminine traits are equally valued as well. And that's something that, that everyone needs to work on. And so that's a, a, an avenue through which you know, men can be good allies is to, is to really you know, check themselves when they're making these assumptions, et cetera. Um, and then, so to clarify about the, so I think you were referencing the Hillary Clinton quote from 1995. So the Beijing conference was a very large conference on women's rights um, that, you know, it's been in the, in the international community, this idea of women's rights since 1945, 1946, actually, since the end of World War II. Um, but we see kind of renewed cycles of it, and 1995 was one of those renewed cycles through the Beijing platform. My name is Deepshika. I'm a student over at the Fletcher School. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. So I had two quick questions. Uh, one is to do with uh, the percentage of women in two contributing countries. You already mentioned that. Can the answer be uh, greater participation for women from the West, uh, from militaries in the West, because they have a high percentage of women? A lot of people talk about that. My second question is to do with incentivizing the participation of women. So there's a lot of talk about premiums and the LC initiative, which came out. Do you think monetary incentives and premiums are something that can work in this regard? Yeah, that's great. Um, and so 
it's not necessarily always that Western countries have higher proportions of women. There's actually a lot of variation in that. I think that's an assumption. And I think it's also an assumption that Western countries perform better on gender equality. That's not true, actually. And it depends on how we're measuring gender equality. Um, so there's that. There's variation. Um, and yeah. Um, but in terms of, yes, incentivizing. So this is, this is an interesting policy prescription, which is basically the idea that if countries are, are sending more women, that they should get uh, a higher amount of money or some kind of premium um, for doing so. There's, it's, it's actually very controversial. Um, and I don't know if that's the right way to go because, again, there's lots of problems with using things like a quota or like these devices to incentivize when that cultural shift hasn't happened. So again, why are you doing this? It's because you think that there we need to justify women's presence somewhere as opposed to thinking that we're all equal and we need the equality and the balance. And so when you, you put a premium, you could it could lead to a lot of unintended backlash um, by people and by countries that you know aren't necessarily quite there. Um, and there's, I mean, there's no evidence so that it would work either because there are so many logistical problems with bringing women. I mean, there's this, this protection norm, for example, or discrimination. Those are real barriers that need to be fixed within not just peacekeeping missions, but within individual armies and police. So even if you have a premium, these problems don't go away. You're just somehow sending women, <laughs> I mean, trying to send women, but not necessarily for the right reasons, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so, I'm sorry, I'm referring to the room. It occurs to me that there's aspects of these peacekeeping missions that are a little bit like the Olympics or World's Fair. You have these people from different countries come together, and they're not necessarily working super closely together, but they at least observe each other doing an activity they respect. Is there an opportunity to inspire male peacekeepers to go back home and say, wow, where I was in Liberia, I saw these Bangladeshi women you know, holding a gun and guarding <laughs> things. Um, I mean, has anyone, or have you looked into this sort of how men's attitudes are changed by yeah. witnessing women doing this stuff? Yeah, that's great. Um, so I have not looked at it. It's, so one of my future projects that I would love to do is to actually look at what happens to individuals uh, compare individuals who have experienced peacekeeping and those who haven't, and one of the things I would like love to look at is how social norms have changed, not just for on gender, but but other countries as well. Yeah. Right. So this could this could essentially peacekeeping missions could serve as kind of a, a mini diplomatic forum, right? Because you have so many countries working together. Um, but no, the reason that so when I started grad school, I really wanted to look at this effectiveness question, which is. What the UN is interested in, right, is how effective are, are women <laughs> in peacekeeping missions? And then I quickly realized that that was the wrong question because you can't even get to that question. And that question is even wrong because of all the things I mentioned about justifying women in the first place. Um, because the story to tell is is first this story of, of you know, problems, essentially, or of like how peacekeeping missions are not being efficient or effective at all because mm -hmm. of all of the way that women are treated in them. Right? So, so the goal of the book was to like to take a first step at the problems that really matter with the hopes that other people will take on other questions, right? With this kind of foundational understanding. Yes. Any great questions? Yes. Thank you for your yes. presentation. It was very interesting. Uh, regarding peacekeepers' uh, sexual abuse, uh, I have a question. Naming and shaming, too much naming and shaming will lose the contribution from them. So I think it's very difficult to balance it. Uh, I, when I was writing my uh, this, uh, 
master thesis, like 10 years back. Um, I interviewed a one uh, UN staff about uh, how can uh, how they can learn from the past. And uh, one point uh, he mentioned was that um, uh, the UN cannot sometimes learn from the past because they cannot store a record of that, like like a bad practice of some countries, some like uh, some individual because of certain like political reasons. Mm -hmm. So I I would like to yeah. hear from you about that. That's great. So this naming and shaming of countries that have uh, experienced sexual exploitation, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse started two years ago, and actually it was done. Um, it started because of a lobby by the U.S. in the U.N. Um, so it was it was a, a goal of the U, of the U.S. delegation in the U.N. to to start this naming and shaming program um, under the Obama administration. Um, but yes, the problem is though this this trade-off because countries that are named and shamed could just say, "Heck with it! Like I'm going to withdraw contributions. You know, I don't want my my country's name to be tarnished." Um, we don't see that happening. Because if you look on the list, again, there's a lot more research that needs to be done on looking at the, the countries that I mentioned on the list and you know, analysis on that. But they are still relatively poor countries. That's not to say that rich countries don't engage in such. I mean, there are all kinds of reports of the French um, and other you know, Western countries engaging in this as well. But they still need the money, right? So. There's no evidence of, of this backlash that's happening yet. That's not to say that it might not happen in the future, but because the reports tend to come back and come, those countries that are shamed are developing countries, but I think maybe they value the money more than the reputation. Yes, there. So I have uh, sort of two questions. One is just a, a background question. I didn't actually realize that there were no more all-female units. So I wonder if you could say something more about mm -hmm. if that's a lull or if they're just completely phased out are they considered to have failed as an experiment? Um, and then more broadly, uh, my my class last semester actually screened this amazing documentary, I don't know if you've seen it, called um, A Journey of a Thousand Miles, which is about this um, yeah. unit, this all-female unit from Bangladesh that was mm -hmm. deployed to Haiti. And it was it's a beautiful film and was deeply inspiring on the one hand and really moving about these women moving to Haiti for a year yeah. and leaving their families and um, how empowering that was for them. And on the other hand, it was also just incredibly depressing because they were just stunningly ill-prepared for the security aspects of their job to the extent that they weren't even trained in how to fire the weapons that are standard issue for people in those kinds of positions. So I was wondering if, if that kind of story is connected to why these all-female peacekeeping units don't seem to exist anymore. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to take one more and then answer the three together, if that's okay, because I know you've had your hand up for a while. <laughs> I'm just wondering gender protection form, yeah. what's your prescription for it? Do you think there should yeah. be no more additional protection for different genders, or do you think it should be like specialization based? If someone, if some team is specialized in community building, they should have more protection for them, or do you think it's totally should be gender blind? And secondly, how who uh, determines which kind of uh, team assigned to which task? Is this UN or the country who provides those teams? Great, okay. So the reason that there's no more all-female units is because the missions in which they were in have drawn down. So Haiti and Liberia, they don't have, they don't need that manpower, in quotes, anymore. Um, I don't think that there's been a comprehensive evaluation of them. So the, the, only, the reason that we see them in the first place is because it's a country-level decision. So India decided and Bangladesh decided. The UN 
didn't go to them and say, hey, can you do this? They were very excited when they when this discussion was happening. And so it has to come from a contributing country. I don't know if India and Bangladesh have done an evaluation on whether or not they think this is a good idea for the future for other larger missions. So Mali would Mali and the DRC would make sense, but I we haven't I don't I don't know the answer to why we haven't seen that. So the journey of a thousand Miles is a fantastic documentary that everybody should see. Um, it's beautifully done um, and, and yeah, but problematic. So the difference between the Indian all-female unit and the Bangladeshi all-female unit was that the Indian unit drew on, um, so India actually has a wonderful history of having all-female units in, a, in their centralized police force. Right? So they actually had, already had female units that they could just deploy that had already trained that had all the experience. Bangladesh did not have the same thing. So they liked, the country liked this policy innovation. I think they wanted to be seen as doing good on gender at the international level, but they didn't have this infrastructure in their own country. So what they did is they created hodgepodge units. They drew women from different parts, that some, of which, some of them had no experience um, in riot training or firing a gun. You know, some, there's a woman in the, in the movie who's the, who specialized, who's a detective basically for gender crimes, right? Um, and she's thrown in there. And again, like their job is security. It's not investigating or doing these other things. So that's problematic in that you're, again, setting up women to fail when maybe you don't have the infrastructure to do that. So my guess is that we probably may not see, um, I don't know if we'll see some from Bangladesh, but it, it, the larger point is that it has to be incentivized from the contributing countries. So. I don't know what incentivizes countries to do that. But actually, there's a, a book on all the all-female unit itself by Leslie Pruitt, if you are interested. Um, yes, and then to answer your question, this is a, a really good question about the gender protection norm and um, how, what can we do to try to, so I think the basis for it really comes from this idea that it's a man's job to protect and it's a woman's you know, job to be protected. And I think if we can find ways to just you know, chip away at this norm, at this idea, to really think that you know, women actually can provide security, um, they're soldiers, they're police officers. Um, I don't know, I, I mean, the solutions that we provide in the book are, are for all three of these problems, just to try to chip away at them through incentives, through the people that are chosen for, for particular positions, et cetera. So, so you want to be gender blind? Yeah. Even if there's some benevolent norms, well, we want. So we want. We want. It's an. It's an equality of norms that we want, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman that holds them. Great. Thank you. Time. Yeah. Um, before we thank Sabrina, I just wanted to say that next week is spring break, so we will not be having a women in public policy program seminar. Uh, but we look forward to seeing you the following week on Thursday, March twenty second. And with that, let's thank, thank Professor Kim.